Hello, you're listening to Film Graves. I'm Emmett. I'm Sam. We're from the rock and roll band Phil Graves, and this is our podcast about cinema. Today's episode, we're largely going to be looking at the programming on the UK version of art house digital streaming service, Mubi. Mm. Yeah, for a change. <laughs> <laughs> you are saying you feel like every episode of this show is a movie episode, but this one is. <laughs> yeah, we're going to cover quite a lot of the stuff on at the moment. And yeah, there are a few interesting sort of director, like triptychs and double bills on there. I think it's the final film of their Stropier retrospective is, is on now. They're picking it up after a year. Yeah, something. our first episode we spoke about... <laughs> A film they programmed in that series. It's true. I believe Antigone is another opera, like Moses and Aaron. I might be wrong on that. (laughs) I'm not sure I can hack it. Definitely getting watched. Big up 1992 as well. (laughs) I'm sure it's sick, man. They're really uh, putting on some of my favourite films ever right now. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. The the Renoir double bill is just... (sighs) Jeez. We got The Grand Illusion and La Bête Humaine. I haven't rewatched The Grand Illusion, but I saw La Bête Humaine for the first time. It's seriously good, man. We did watch a, the first scene from it when we did our Trains episode. It's true. It featured in the in the Going Loco episode with Darrell, of course, being a classic train film. Well, yeah, honestly, the stuff on the train is just sick, man. Crazy kinetic cinematography, especially considering how early it is. It's extremely dynamic stuff. He's the goat, man, you know. Yeah. A lot of cigarette smoking. For sure. And uh, Jean Gabin is my favourite train driver on screen, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's a great performance. Man. Such an intense performance. Yeah. And yeah, he really goes crazy in that film. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's like a psychological study. It's based on Zola, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It has the Iron Horse Fate to Abraham Lincoln style. Oh, yeah, yeah. Graphic yeah. <laughs> homage at the beginning, which is great. But then after that, it doesn't really feel traditional. It's a really, really different film to The Grand Illusion, which is definitely one of the best films ever made. Mm, Yeah, I watched it in a film class. Um, Oh, did you? Yeah. Also starring Jean Gabin as a prisoner of war in Mm. World War One. He's sort of like a, a working class guy and he's imprisoned with sort of another pilot who's like an aristocrat. And they're in this like German castle, Eric von Stroheim plays the sort of German aristocrat general. Yeah, classic. And it's a really mad film for exploring how Gabin's, I can't remember what his name is, the other character, just how, what he has in common more with the Stroheim character on a sort of class basis compared to Mm. what side of the war they're on. Mm, For sure. It's just such a critical film, man. Politically, I mean, it's probably the best World War I film. Yeah. I don't think there's really any argument about that. Aesthetically, it's obviously sick. I get maybe a bit more stagey than The Human Beast. For sure. For the last 30 minutes, it all takes place like of them like, the climb, climbing the shit. Alps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, amazing outdoor photography in real different tone. I don't know. I, I try and get everyone to watch this shit, and I've been texting loads of people about it, but even ones with movie subscriptions, maybe it's a bit of a hard sell. But guys, it's one of the best films ever. Yeah, I can't wait to rewatch it, man. I might rope in my family for the yeah. for the experience. Well, it's yeah. a real Sunday Sunday afternoon, you know, epic. <coughs> no, I'm joking. This is a dark and sad film. 
<laughs> but please watch it, guys. It's a lot better than every other film we're going to talk about on this this episode of the podcast. I'll happily say that. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it probably is, to be fair. But Diary of a Country Priest, another another film that we've struggled to get people to watch. We've been running up the numbers <laughs> on... Mo- yeah, exactly. But, um, still going to keep pressing it. I think we'll have to do our Priest episode soon, Sam. Yeah, I'm super down, man. If any listeners know any priests who aren't delivering services right now and also maybe <laughs> like cinema, put them in touch with us. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> I'll yeah, make them watch Under the Sun of Satan. Yeah. <laughs> Diary of a Country Priest is really amazing, guys. You should all watch that as well. Of course. Of really, course. Yeah. Yeah. We spoke about it, I think, when we spoke about Infam Deuce. I think it comes up a fair amount. Yeah. <laughs> it's great that movie are g- giving us this kind of stuff next to the, the real trash that they've been putting on in the Perfect Failures season or whatever. Or not the trash, but next to the uh, less guaranteed quality that you'll get in some other films. Mm. They also put out a portrait of a lady on fire about three weeks after the cinematic release. Yeah, that was one of the last films I saw in the cinema, man. Fuck. <laughs> I really wanted to watch it when I was on holiday last year because it was in cinemas like soon after it had been in the film festivals. Mm-hmm. But I missed it. But was really happy to see it here. Really, really, really good. Yeah, flawless. I don't really have anything but praise for it. I thought it was amazing. Um, I feel like it's one of those films where I'd seen the trailer quite a lot and obviously there was a lot of hype for it mm. based off, I mean, the other films that I've seen by Celine Sciamma that girlhood was brilliant yeah it's just a banging film i think like even though i'd already seen a lot of the images and like sequences on like twitter or in like you know clipped form Mm. it was still a really really like fresh and invigorating film for sure man like superbly paced and i don't know seeing the images play out like fully they are like very it's a film about painting you know and like it's extremely painterly and like all about like the gaze i guess specifically the female gaze or the female like painter gaze and yeah just really aesthetically sick throughout and a really cool story and no dudes which is cool <laughs> yeah for sure <laughs> no it's a really great film um try and watch it while it's still on there i think it's on for another couple of weeks at this point i'm definitely going to watch it again because oh i think it's like a couple of days oh is it uh, yeah <laughs> oh. some of the films we're going to talk about have already left yeah, sadly so. So if you missed uh, Southland Tales, you're gutted. <laughs> I guess that's a time capsule that you can unearth at any point, though, isn't it? <laughs> we'll get into it. No spoilers. <laughs> they did a season on Joseph Losey. I hadn't even heard of him before, I've got to admit. But I watched two of them. The Servant, one he made in England in 63, and Monsieur Clan, one he made in France in the 70s, and they were both sick. You watched a couple more, didn't you? Yeah, I'd never seen The Servant before, even though I feel like it's had like about three cinematic reissues in the last 10 years. Great. <laughs> but um, I guess it's a, a really important film for having like a very clear like homosexual subtext at a time when that was still illegal. Mm-hmm. But um, it's just a crazy film, I think, the way they frame these characters, like, pretty much all indoors. For sure. I mean, it's a true, like, chamber drama, I guess. I don't really like Harold Pinter that much. I don't really like to read his plays. Quite unpleasant stuff. For sure. This was <laughs> this was the only one where I think he was actually writing the dialogue 
from scratch, whereas the go-between and accident are both adapted from novels. I think this one's from a novel. Oh, is it? I think so. I thought it was from like a magazine article or whatever, because I heard about oh, it. Oh, maybe it is. I was reading about like the true story, which involved like Winston Churchill's daughter, and that was like somewhat similar, but also a bit more transgressive. Accident, another film that they did a few years later, which is about a Oxford professor and an Austrian princess, and like it's got a the guy who plays Basil Exposition from Austin Powers, which is great. That film was adapted from a novel written by Oswald Mosley's son. Wow, fuck the black shirts. Yeah, 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 yeah. What's the uh, go between? The go between is adapted from a a novel from the fifties, but it was a novel that's set in like really late victorian like turn of the century england and it, i guess again it's about like class it's about a 10 year old boy who goes who's like really upper middle class and he goes to stay with, with like a bunch of aristocrats it's really good as well it's got a good cricket cricket match all those films though are like super ethnographic films about like the upper classes in england or whatever watching all three in a row was extremely like i mean they're all sick films but it was extremely like suffocating being in that kind of <laughs> feel like you just watched the souvenir oh you beat me to it yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but they are really really sick films with like really interesting characters and dynamics in them while there are things in common with uh the servant and mr klein like i feel like mr klein monster clan is uh like pretty pretty different i guess to that sort of in, well, in that it's interrogating like a specific historical phenomenon rather than like the specificities of class in in England. For sure, I guess, but it's it's as like detailed and like the setting is as important. Monsieur Klein's like a horror film, though I feel. Straight. Yeah, it's about an art dealer played by Alain Delon in 1942 in Paris, and he yeah. he makes all his money off like buying up the possessions of. Uh, Jews in France who have to flee the country and sell all their belongings yeah. basically and then yeah. he's put on a list even though he's I guess Catholic and he's from Alsace or he's like German right? I'm not sure but anyway he gets mistaken for another Monsieur Klein who lives yeah there. someone subscribes him to a like Jewish newspaper so he it becomes like sort of like mad identity crisis thing the film like foregrounds like jewish persecution in like a crazy way with this extremely savage first scene oh where she's having her teeth examined and by the doctor and stuff right yeah there's a woman who's like gone in for a medical examination so she can get a certificate like establishing that she's not jewish basically um based on like a physical examination it's a really savage film and a really savage interrogation of like Vichy France in quite an elliptical and well I guess in a really elliptical way like you see like German soldiers like twice yeah but it's I guess it's all about like the effects of that as they like drip down into French society and cause like all the paranoia and ultimately like murder of people yeah it has a crazy tone, I think, similar to The Servant, which also has a pretty mad tone. But this film, mm. I feel, is just totally unique. Um, if you compare it to some of the Melville films that were on movie last month, specifically Army mm. of Shadows, which doesn't have Alain Delon in it, even though basically all his other films of that period do. That was a film made by someone who was very involved in the resistance mm. personally at the time. 
but Joseph Losey, who uh, was American, blacklisted in the 50s and banned from working in America pretty early on during McCarthyism, mm. then moved to make films in England and then eventually France. The sort of weight of history and like the sort of living nightmare thing is a way bigger part of the tone of Monsieur Klein. Maybe because it's exploring like the Holocaust theme more explicitly that contributes to the dread. Whereas like Army of Shadows is like really intriguing, exciting. There's a lot of questions with a lot of answers. Like the mysteries of Monsieur Klein like are really troubling even way after the film is over. Yeah, for sure, man. But <laughs> what can I say? I agree, yeah. I loved Army of Shadows because um I guess the French resistance or any form of like resistance to fascism makes for like an intriguing film subject. In this it's like so oblique, like there's no resistance. It's all like the banality of like complicity until like he's getting he's on like a cattle truck. It's mad. It really is a crazy film. And as you said, like the tone is insane throughout. Like it is a mystery film, but there's no answer. It's great though. And um I believe it wasn't like that huge of a film when it came out in the seventies and it had a, it looks amazing this uh, restoration that was done by Rialto Pictures last year. It was in the cinemas in New York when I was there at the film forum. Nice man. So it's great that they put that on movie. I'm gonna have to explore a lot more of Joseph Losey's stuff. I know there's a lot of biographies about him. Yeah, I'm gonna have to get more involved, man. Honestly, I love both of these films. You have to check out the uh, the assassination of Trotsky. Ne- yeah. <laughs> yeah for sure they've also got uh, Ran by Akira Kurosawa which is a film I don't really want to watch on the small screen because I've seen it in the cinema twice but amazing film real classic yeah sure I haven't seen that one man that's terrible isn't it is that the King Lear one it is a King Lear adaptation it's in full widescreen colour it's pictorially just insane very very rich and compared to Kagamusha which you made around the same time it's a lot less boring than that also (laughs) Um, manages to explore like nuclear themes despite being set in like feudal imperial Japan. Oh, how does it do that? With like the sun exploding Great. on the screen. Yeah, exactly. It's mad. Cool. Gotta watch it. Maybe I'll wait for it to see it in the cinema when we can though. If if that if that's ever an option again. There's also the Chris Marker documentary about Ran, which I would really like to see. I feel like movie programming's been more important than ever i'm sure their numbers have gone up in lieu of well they've well it's been really cheap for people who haven't been subscribing for ages i think it was like for a while it was like one pound for three months yeah that's crazy yeah and you know they're not putting us onto garbage they're giving us quite a spread yeah lots of lots and lots of cool stuff recently man i think we've gone through it So last week, Mubi premiered Pablo Lorraine's new film, Emma. It uh, was first shown at the Venice Film Festival last year. Mubi picked it up for a cinematic release here. But obviously, because of the lockdown, they gave it a digital release. I felt a bit cheated because they said it was going to be like a 24-hour exclusive global digital premiere. But then it was just on Mubi for 30 days straight after that. Yeah. (laughs) I guess they need to make it an event somehow you know for sure did you feel like the film benefited from the sense of exclusivity you experienced when you watched it in that 24 hour window 
Yeah, because we started it at like 20 past 10 and be like, oh, quick, we've got to start it soon. It's only going to be available for 80 more minutes. Quick. Like, you know, when you press download on a film on movie and you can like keep it on your phone for a couple of days yeah. after it <laughs> expires. But I guess the demand was just too high or people had other stuff to do on Friday. Yeah, like some shit quiz or something. <laughs> what do you think of Pablo Lorraine in general? No is one of my favourite like modern films if I think back on like ones I've seen in the cinema. Jackie was really cool. Yeah, I love him as like a period filmmaker, you know. A lot of these films about the 20th century, mostly in Chile. Yeah, I wanted to watch uh, Postmortem, but I couldn't find like a watchable copy, sadly. But that looks really interesting. Neruda from the same year as Jackie was a brilliant film, I thought. Really imaginative, formally, and as well as doing a pretty tough job of like and not literally animating but like bringing like some pretty like impressionistic poetry Mm. both like the context politically and also using like mise-en-scene and like light and stuff and outdoor nature photography and stuff sounds cool man as well as having a cool like fake imaginary ghost detective plot Gael Garcia Bernal plays this like fictional detective who's like trying to hunt him down in the mountains but is actually just a figment of his imagination and the paranoia of, you know, what happened when they got rid of Allende. Yeah, for real, man. Postmortem is set, like, in, like, right at the beginning of, like, the coup. Really need to watch the shit. Emma is set in contemporary Chile, in, like, a port town. When it played at Venice, in his director's statement, he said, I guess they can be, these statements can be as, like, long or cryptic as they want. Like, I was looking at James Gray's one for Ad Astra, and it's like... Oh, I was reading this Arthur C. Clarke quote, and then uh, I started thinking, um, (laughs) the Emma one is from Lorraine, is a meditation on the human body, dance, and motherhood. And uh, I thought that was quite an interesting place to start. For being pretty insubstantiative from the jump. Mm. I guess aesthetically, it's a super rich film. It has really cool music by Nicholas Yar someone whose music I haven't listened to in about seven years, but I'm assured is still making cool, <laughs> cool tunes. Yeah, it's about a reggaeton dancer and her husband is a, like a choreographer and they're in like a fucked up relationship. So th- there's lots of like music throughout. They're like big choreograph sequences where she's dancing, not really like reggaeton music, but this more like arty sort of modern ballet stuff that Gael Garcia Bernal's character is the director of are i guess one of the highlights of the film the first one takes place in front of this like crazy sun in like a sort of planetarium it's like a a big orb of light that changes color and the dancing is really cool the camera work is really expressive and like moves around a lot in interesting ways and the dancing is mad yeah it juxtaposes those sequences which are like really visually stunning with scenes of emma and Gaston just like arguing really abusing each other which is quite grueling really for sure I mean it's a super fucked up like human story I would argue (laughs) I don't want to sound like a square while reviewing this film but there were (laughs) a lot of things that happened that upset me and I was like oh this is awful yeah I mean the premise is before the film starts they've adopted like a kid and then like given him up because they can't handle it he's like she's a pyromaniac (laughs) I feel like it's important to say it's true she's introduced with a flamethrower like setting fire to a car yeah (laughs) 
and the kid is like sort of replicating their like fucked up behaviors and it's about her like trying to get him back and get this like mother role back and she tries to bait she basically tries to fuck her way to that goal that is what the story is it's mad because you don't really realize that's what it is until it's all until it's revealed that like the woman and the man that she was pursuing are husband and wife for sure it is a bit of a mad ending man (laughs) (laughs) pretty boomwellian situation at the end you know yes it also reminded me a bit of la dolce vita as just like quite cynical and grim for sure it is nasty but i think from the you know these are pretty horrible characters from the start i mean this woman i mean it's really they are man i feel like they're both really vindictive and this is why i was you know at the beginning when they have this this dance scene intercut with just them like parring the shit out of each other and it's really unpleasant you know yeah they're like the couple from weekend you know (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah for sure it did remind me of um pinter as well uh-huh. especially having watched the servant around the same time just just really vindictive characters not sympathetic there is one br- brilliant argument that i love i think um Gal garcia by now is really good in this film actually as a sort of oppositional character like an antagonist which i guess he, mm. is a role he also plays in naruda but there's just one scene where he just completely loses it and like reveals that he hates reggaeton music because it's so repetitive and he's just yeah. like reggaeton and makes a prison for your mind so on some Foucault tip you know <laughs> like <laughs> there's so many sequences just delivered to camera which are like quite lazily shot I would argue it's just like two people arguing and it's like peep show where they're just like st- yeah, shouting at you Yeah, it's interesting that it does have that but it's also like clearly very like lavishly shot like so a lot of it is like a music video i guess Mm -hmm. it is meant to be sort of ironic i feel like maybe there's a bit of dialogue that alludes to that where he's talking about like the function of dance in their like shitty lives right and like how it like adds like a luster to like a grim like social reality (laughs) reality um so i don't i don't know it is like a very allegorical film you know for sure and it explores like corruption in a pretty interesting way, I think, where like the social worker can be bribed and also mm. I don't know, this woman becomes like a sort of arsonist just so she can attract one of the firefighters, right? Bizarre abuse of public services. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> for sure. I'm down for revolutionary behaviour, you know. Mm. It's more yeah. about like liberty for sure. and like the function of unbridled liberty and you know. They are bohemian and permissive, as opposed to, like, a repressive state. There are bits of dialogue which, like, explicitly refer to the history of dictatorship in the country that, like, situate their behaviours within that framework, or, like, their cultural or social, like, practices in opposition to that framework. But For sure. I don't know, it's a really interesting film, man, but I didn't enjoy watching it, really. (laughs) I, I would agree with you. I was pretty pretty pissed off by it, even though there were like quite a lot of sequences that I did enjoy. Reading a lot of the reviews for this film, I was kind of surprised by how a lot of the ones on Letterboxd, especially after Venice, were just like people, I guess, understandably kind of blown away by the film and the sort of emotional roller coaster it takes you on. But a lot of the sort of like non-mixed praise was just like loving how chaotic and uh, sort of destructive the film is or whatever or just expressive and chaotic it is and like oh you know this woman like is gonna like 
have sex with like whoever she cares about or whoever she wants to and like da 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 even so that i don't know i found the, the sort of like sexual abuse of the adopted child was from the jump like very <laughs> i found it I... when um bernal's character says oh you put your nipple in his mouth like is yes that, is that yeah which is i don't know i just found it uh it's like oh right okay yeah, well, I, I, at first, I, I, yeah, I but, guess he's you know, meant, he's, like, he's meant to be like sub ten. But then when you meet him, he looks really <laughs> like he looks very like wizened. Yeah, but I guess you know, as a sort of problem child narrative, it's interesting to explore these. I don't know. I'm not like a. I don't have a child or whatever. So obviously, these are these are huge issues or whatever to explore. And it's really dealing with, like, some quite tough subject matter. But I feel like from the jump, Emma was, like, a pretty horrible person. Horrible yeah, character. absolutely, man. And the film, the trajectory of the story only compounds that sense. Uh, Jonathan Romney, who's a great critic, his review in Screen Daily is really good. And he talks about Pablo Lorraine being sort of, like, with the other two, like, sort of late middle-aged male screenwriters of the film, just being, like really intoxicated by this like very liberated woman and like writing that and it coming out very sort of male gazy which i get but then it's also interesting how a lot of people have really loved that about the film or loved the main character yeah i didn't like the main character man but okay <laughs> I, I i wouldn't like if the roles were reversed okay it would be just as awful <laughs> more awful yeah for sure i found it pretty troubling while entertaining and i i gotta say like I love most of his films. Mm. I loved Jackie and Noah and Neruda and his film, The Club, which I would really recommend, which is about a sort of like home for like retired, like bad priests. Like one Yeah, we'll do that in a future episode, hopefully. I guess it will be one of the, it be there in the priest films, uh, jumping off from a sort of Father Ted-ish premise, but is actually a really awesome there's a bit in sorry extremely tangential but there's a bit in the servant where it's like the characters from father Ted, when they're in the restaurant scene yeah and there's just like it's like oh father and the Ted, bishop comes in yeah, <laughs> yeah yeah for sure with his like stupid servant or like secondary or whatever mm. but yeah the club is a really really good film and sort of deals with like really difficult subject matter both like historical and sort of like present in a way that I didn't find as problematic as in this film, where I felt like there was a sort of alienation thing, or at least a distance between like the character and the writer, director. Whereas I feel like like Jackie, for example, is a really compassionate film, mm. even though it does leave you just with like a pretty cynical look of like her representation just being like the iconography of like the clothes that she sees in the shop or whatever. Mm. Is, yeah, or like the pageantry of statehood. Yeah, it is really deep. But throughout the film, I feel like it's pretty empathetic. Whereas this film was just almost too wild. This film didn't manufacture any empathy on my part for the characters. I thought they were all, you know... Agreed. Yeah, yeah, I don't... <laughs> I'm afraid. <laughs> that's not, to, I don't know, that's not to take away from it. Like, it does have a lot of artistic merit, I think. Especially, the, you know, the way they shoot the city, if not the exchanges. Yeah, it's a very cool looking place. It's a very unusual city layout or the way it's sort of visualised in the film, I thought. Mm. Yeah, and I guess just the way it's lit. I guess they're like crane shots where but you can really see the levels of the city and they're all lit in different ways. Very cool. For sure. 
but hey, you know, we love, we've been loving um, left-wing South American cinema. And yeah, big time, man. I would have figured Lorraine in that still. Yeah, so, I mean, when we discuss um, Rojo, I feel like I talk about No all the time. <laughs> I guess, whereas that that's like a period film, this is more of a, not futuristic, but like, like forward-looking and like constructive. Yeah, I'm really not sure about its uh, vision. I'm still troubled by it and I'm still sort of thinking about it. Yeah, I'm definitely still processing it as well. But yeah, it's going to be on maybe for a few, a few weeks by the time this is broadcast, so... I'd still recommend it. Yeah, it's check it out. Film. What's your What's your excuse? We're all locked down, and if you got a movie <laughs> account, or if you got one for a pound, you might as well watch it. <laughs> Should we talk about Southland Tales, <laughs> which is probably <laughs> even more categorical a stinker? Yeah, fantastic. That's like an out and out outright bad film. Emma was just like kind of troubling and confusing, but I still kind of rated <laughs> rated it. <laughs> One of these things that have been happening quite a lot in different spheres in digital quarantine mode where a lot of people watch the same film at the same time. And uh, Southland Tales was seemingly one of uh, Twitter's go-to <laughs> things to pop off and uh, revisit and have a nice tweet along. So Mr. R. Kelly came out, <laughs> came from hiding. Yeah, movie programmed it as part of their... Uh... Was it Perfect Failures season? Yeah. You know, this was Richard Kelly's follow-up to Donnie Darko, which was obviously an extremely popular film. Like I liked it when I was a kid because it was weird, basically. It was an early, yeah, uh, early <laughs> classic for me, certainly. I was like, whoa. <laughs> you know? Yeah, of course, man. I mean, it's uh, I, I sadly didn't re-watch it for this. I don't, don't know if I can really bring myself to. I have no intention to re-watch but... <laughs> it. Yeah, screening alongside other films like Charlie Chaplin's Accountess from Hong Kong. Weirdly, Kelly Reichardt's Night Moves, which is a good movie. She's got First Cow coming out very Oh, soon. yeah, I really want to watch that. It's not having a digital release here, though. I don't think so. I think we'll be... I think they're waiting for the cinema. Could be waiting a while. But curiously, even though they've put out um, Wong Kar Wai's My Blueberry Nights onto movie recently, I don't know why it wasn't part of this failures thing, because it's really uh, one of the worst films <laughs> I mean, Southland Tales. I I wanted to like it um, on some like uh, contrarian shit. Yeah, exactly, man. You know, I feel like obviously we're often sort of in accord when we talk about films, and I want you know you were so <laughs> vociferous in your criticism of it that I wanted to like it. You know, for the good of the podcast. Yeah, of course, man. But I guess I've got my okay. Tommy, so you got to have yours at some point. You know. <laughs> But sure. super hard to like, I found. Um, I was scrolling, you know, after I watched it, I was sort of scrolling through Letterbox and seeing obviously a lot of apologists for it. A lot of people that seem to really like it. Oh, yeah. But I guess they are maybe, you know, maybe it's ironic. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I think, well, there's a lot, of, it's a very irony-heavy film, I think. I, you know, I get it. Any film could become anyone's favourite film or whatever. And especially a film that's so, like, dense and, you know, it's full of, like, shit that I guess is funny. Mm. <laughs> Let's talk about what, what, what is it? It's quite hard to summarise, but... I would say it's, like, quite like a literary film. For sure, man. I feel like the obvious comparison is Pynchon feel like we say this shit all the time but it is actually true in that his stories 
sort of drag you around. You meet lots of interesting characters with wavy names. There, you know, there's some weird like conspiratorial shit often going on, and like fringe groups. You could handle under the Silver Lake, though, couldn't you? When that came out about a year ago. Yeah, I feel like that. This compares very unfavorably to that, which is like oblique and relies on like someone following like a breadcrumb trail of symbols and shit like that that's fine i remember when the trailer came out when i saw it i was like it looks exactly like if they made a film out of the crying of lot 49 but had like a beta male protagonist or whatever <laughs> but For sure. i turned that film off after 40 minutes but i managed to get to the end of southland tales so i guess i preferred that yeah j- just to finish the comparison like uh I, d- I don't feel like Southland Tales achieves that sort of... I don't think it's successful in imitating this like literary style at all. Well, it, I guess um, Southland Tales is way more of a gravity's rainbow, you know. It's, uh, it jumps around a lot in terms of uh, time and space. Yeah, but com- <laughs> no, but it's like, okay, so I'm saying structurally it, or like theoretically it's similar, but it just doesn't reach like the right heights in that the dialogue is shite throughout. And the characters have bad names. Yeah, and it has and, nothing you know, to say. Like, it's <laughs> I'm reading I'm reading Gravity's Rainbow right now and like it's fun and like this is just really, really, really not and it's jokes in a way that this is really, really, really not. But maybe it is like you watch like Fateful Findings or The Room and that is jokes, you know, it makes you laugh every time. Just okay, if you haven't seen Southland Tales, it's a story set over three days, narrated by Justin Timber. I mean, oh, no, you li- you literally can't summarize it. It's so stupid, man. Yeah. How it's... we need to we need to lay down a premise though at some point. Okay, so it was it was made in like 2005 and it's set in 2008, but it didn't come out until 2008. So yeah, uh, <laughs> it wasn't a future. I I quite like that idea, and it's like it's really responsive to like the Bush era, like idiocracy or something like that it's yeah very much so man like infotainment big satire on yeah exactly or like governor schwarzenegger all these like phenomena like teen horniness or um you know the energy crisis (laughs) there's a lot there's a lot going on abilene texas gets nuked in the first scene which uh brings about this like ecological crisis Yeah, and also, like, more of, like, a sort of police state, like, surveillance division. Um, (laughs) Meanwhile... uh, That's just... (laughs) Yeah, meanwhile... um, The Rock is... uh, He he plays a... a, (laughs) He plays a pimp. (laughs) The film... So, in the proceeding... I think we need... I think we literally need to... <laughs> no, come on, let's try. Let's let's give it a go. So The Rock is like a really famous actor who's disappeared, and he's going to get married to the governor of California's daughter. Oh no, they're married. Oh, they're married, but he's cheating on her with Sarah Michelle Gellar, who plays like a porn star who has a reality TV show. But she's like the voice of like twenty first century feminism in the film. <laughs> I'm glad you said that. And not I, but yeah, I guess, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's what it yeah, is. Like. Yeah, it's true. It's true. There's some. She says some wild shit in this film. Anyway, they they have a screenplay that somehow mirrors this like secret government conspiracy, and there's like a a rift in the space time continuum 
in Nevada where people get du- uh, like duplicated. Yeah, because yeah, because they come out before they go in because they go back in time by sixty nine seconds. <laughs> The plot is yeah, the plot's sort of immaterial, I feel. Apparently in the um in the like theatrical cut that came out after Cannes, that's where they put in all the like fake news footage. Yeah, okay. I mean it's I guess it's important to note then that like the structure it's meant to be like structurally frag fragmented. It's chapters four, five and six in a story. I don't think either of us read the graphic novels, so really we're not qualified to to be reviewing this film because we don't yeah, really of course. like watching of course. Human Condition Part Three. Yeah, yeah, I've done that shit now. Yeah, I'm not gonna t- touch it here. I thought at t- okay at the beginning I thought it was gonna be like Starship Troopers or something like that. Right, like a super ironic. Yeah, or like wrote like some. Yeah. Robocop, Verhoeven shit, you know. Those are great. I just don't feel like it is It is that at all. I feel like it's a really garbled, immature interpretation of, like, the the world. <laughs> like, a really shit phenomenology. It's just so clearly the, the, like, vision of one mind, though, where it's got, like, their own, like, or what they're worried about, and also the, the lyrics to their favourite songs being, like, an integral part of like the dialogue to certain scenes and like a couple of quotations from like stuff they might have read in high school or something. Yeah, I mean it's like subversive like readings of uh like Elliot where it's like this is the way the world ends not with a whimper but a bang. Right. Right. <laughs> and loads of Robert Frost. Right. <laughs> Oh, yeah, because the political family are the Frosts, right? And he's like, oh, my God. There's one bit where he's like, <laughs> so bad. He's like, you have miles to go before you sleep. Miles to go. <laughs> oh, it's so bad. Terrible, terrible. Um, oh, Al- Albus is in agreement. Yeah, literally studied both those two for AS English, AQA 2010. Maybe Richard Kelly was also... <laughs> Catching up on his A-levels. <laughs> but it's weird because I remember this shit coming out and being like, oh, that sounds really jokes. I definitely want to see that. Like, I didn't get around seeing it in the cinema because it probably was screened in about three cinemas or something. Yeah, fuck, man. But I don't know. I never got around to seeing it before. Even like... At any time where it's like interested in like postmodern fiction or whatever or like satire like, like just a satire is so thin man y- yeah it has nothing <sighs> to say like let's talk about the conception of politics in it because okay so there's two characters that are the descendants of jenny karl marx's wife this is we're recording this on karl marx's birthday by the way and from what i gathered my understanding was there were two different factions of neo-marxists um there was like the Amy Poehler sort of cell who were just like improv theatre people. But I didn't understand any of the things they were talking about. But I thought at least the acting in those bits was kind of good. Yeah, I mean, that was definitely the funniest bit. Yeah. Um, but then there's... And then the... Yeah, go on. 
And then the other side is like the family of Baron von Westphalen, played by uh, Wallace Shawn. Great quote from Wallace Shawn in this thing I read where he was like, well, you know, I didn't want to be one of the actors who passed on Waiting for Godot because he didn't understand it. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> yeah, these are the these are the descendants of uh, these are yeah, the yeah, the yeah, West. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they're the like energy firm as well. Yeah, using the wave of pioneered fluid karma. <laughs> <laughs> which is which is both an energy source and a drug. Yeah. Oh my god. Yep. Justin Timberlake is the narrator of this film. He's good. Um, he's good in the film. I would. Uh, I'd contest that point. I thought that for sure. I really disagree. They they. <laughs> I hated the narration, dude. I hated it, and. But you should hate Richard Kelly I, I for that. Know. Not that. <laughs> There can be good and bad narration. Um, Definitely. Okay, they re-recorded the narration after it showed it can. After, and I think that's when they also put in the fake TV stuff. So this film must have made absolutely zero sense before they put. <laughs> well, I think okay. This is the quote from a New York Times article from 2007. Um, I misdirected Justin. <laughs> that's that's the first time round. Justin said he didn't understand what it was about in an interview a few years ago. Great. Well, maybe he can listen to this podcast and find out. Um, <laughs> probably the worst scene in the film for me, and one that actually made me cringe, is when he sort of lip syncs along to the zeitgeist anthem, all these things that I have done by the killers. It's bad, bad song. Yeah, bad scene. Really excruciating all round. Um I thought I thought that was a good scene. Mm. Nah, it literally. I I was struggling to watch it at that point. I don't know why it's there. If you know, you write in, tell us. Yeah, I was thinking about it in the context of how in the pension books there are always a bunch of songs or like musical interludes, but I mean it comes through as completely arbitrary and yeah. I think it's definitely just because Richard Kelly was really into. Hot Fast by the Killers at that Yeah, time. it's literally a music video featuring Justin Timberlake. Um, the pension songs, the, the the penis that wasn't his own and stuff, they're all really funny, man. <laughs> if it was a musical and he'd written some songs for it in the style of Radiohead and the Killers and uh, who else in there? Muse. Maybe should have written some bars because <laughs> Lord knows all of those tunes, like even the good ones, the lyrics are not where the appeal comes from, I don't think. Yeah, I just wanted to literally just par that scene, really. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for thanks for giving me the opportunity. The politics are so fucked up, though, man. As you said, there there are like you know various conceptions of like Marxism presented in it. This like agitator group, um, and then the like tyrannical, super evil. Yeah, the like Tim Burton like <laughs> no it's, it's straight david lynch's june it looks exactly the same as that like yeah of course man and um who's the singer that does the number at the end of this oh yeah it's uh rebecca del rio the the one who sings in the club scene in yeah yeah More Holland Drive. <laughs> um so why would you why would you do that though like I just, All it does is invite comparison to, like, oh, your film, is it as good as Mulholland Drive? Like, there was no way that was ever going to be the case. It's so 
tacky. Just in like invoking. The, I know there's like you know a degree of having all these like sham references to like make up a void, like a cultural void, which I guess is uh, like where it sort of renders it all meaningless by putting it in against all this other stuff. But I don't feel like any of the references, be that Radiohead, Karl Marx, the Book of Revelations, uh, Kiss Me Deadly, uh, none of it lands, really. I don't know what it is. Okay, sorry, just another quote from him. Um, (laughs) He says, I'm making fun of myself, the angry liberal, um, in relation to, like, the use of, like, Marx in the film. The joke is that things have gotten so bad that even neo-Marxists have been forced to bear arms. What? Yeah, that's that's <laughs> the joke. But then I guess, you know, <laughs> you could talk about the Overton window or whatever. I don't know. I was 10 years old. He was 25. Maybe there was less to understand about the framework of politics in the Bush era from his perspective. But I just don't believe that to be true. What, just some sort of brutally unilateral freedman <laughs> shite? Um, let's talk about The Rock. His worst performance. Yeah, this was like just as he was breaking into sort of Hollywood, wasn't it? I think you could actually say this was like when he started taking more left field roles, like he played the sort of camp character in Be Cool, the sequel to Get Shorty. And he also appeared in Gridiron Gang, where he explored a more tender, dramatic, meaningful Oscar-y side to his, uh, <laughs> to his oeuvre. Both far stronger films than this one. He was in, like, uh, Welcome to the Jungle and other ones like that. <laughs> he was in a film. He was in another film with Sean William Scott. He was in basically nothing before this, man. It was like The Mummy, Scorpion oh, of course, that King. Was his, that was his first... I remember like, it well. Doom. His, yeah because of the shite cgi you want to talk about the the fucking cars you want to talk about bad cgi (laughs) and they use it they use it twice in like very incomplete i don't care about the graphics really but sometimes they're it's just too much this is richard kelly in this vice article talking about casting the rock so i brought my mega zeppelin schematics to the firehouse restaurant in venice beach kelly recalled he was referring to baron bond westphalen's airship on which the film's climax takes place Dwayne the rock rolled up in his humvee and i was showing him these mega zeppelin schematics and he was very amused he said yes immediately (laughs) we are very amused i guess it is a cool (laughs) design yeah but okay the production design in the film is like not interesting at all either i guess there are a few moments where you feel like the sort of sci-fi concept art is like manifest on screen but so much of it is like not that I guess the, maybe the point is to juxtapose that area with, like, a sci-fi future, but I didn't feel like it synthesises these, these two elements, like, at all. feels like these things are taking place in different places. Yeah, for sure. I just, I found it really boring as well, man. Look, it's a two and a half hour long film with a lot of mad shit going on. It should be a caper, you know? At least Under the Silver Lake, which, you know, you mentioned as a sort of recent reference point i know you also said you turned it off but i found it sort of projects you through it a lot more something like the fucking the nice guys is 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 more jokes you know as like a weird neo-noir like la noir like you can have like 
a weird conspiratorial plot line, but like experience it in a coherent way through the eyes of the characters, you know? In this film, you do not get that experience at all. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And it sort of refracts the kiss me deadly sort of like noir detective, but with this like conspiracy element through Pulp Fiction, which also has like loads of things, just like very obvious like reference points for this film and was also heavily influenced by that. Just the dialogue as well, man, needs to carry you through this and I get yeah, I guess ugh, so exposition. I don't want to read well, the man. shooting script though. I don't want to read the greed, like the eight hour version. I don't think it would make any I don't want to know why like Oh my god. That person says like I'm gonna kill myself if you don't let me suck your dick right now or like <laughs> yeah. why why pimps don't commit suicide or whatever i don't care like oh my god it just uh, yeah i find yeah. it so hard to care and so hard to enjoy uh, it's just unfortunate because obviously in theory going into it there are a lot of elements that you should like that or that should be that should work but it's it, it could at least it could at least be a jokes film though you know i'll tell you what there are a couple of moments when i did start buying into it the bit where where Amy Poehler's character, they're like doing that like sting operation, and then I was like, oh cool, maybe. Actually, no. She this was can the, go. she was the only one who could like could read out the lines. I feel like everyone else. There was just one one thing I wanted to say with regards to the Rock. Actually, do you like the Rock in general? Uh, he's all right. I guess uh, yeah. I do. You know, I like a good blockbuster every once in a while. I guess, but I I think he's know. usually pretty animated and like entertaining to watch. But when he's when the stuff he's saying doesn't make any sense, then it's so hard to like engage. Yeah, of course, man. This was before he was one of the most like bankable actors of our century. I'm sure I'd like read some like a thing about him being like the highest grossing actor in some capacity. So so I you know, quite nauseatingly went down a bit of a rabbit hole, like, looking at this shit. Um, looking at, like, an article where it's ranking, like, performance, like, <laughs> most grossing actors, right? And it was, like, an editorial thing. And all the descriptions are like, his involvement in Toy Story 4 made Disney a lot of money. <laughs> this has uh, to be his <laughs> lowest grossing um, picture, though, surely. Even compared to like WWE paper, I, I guess so. Like, cause it, it it wasn't in any screens, man. It was in like seventy screens. I feel bad. Like, what was it when we were talking about Parasite? We were like, yeah, it's a huge success. It's great. It's made loads of money. Woo! And this and this is like this film is terrible, and it did really bad at the box office. Boo! <laughs> no, I literally don't give a shit. I mean, he hasn't had many opportunities after this. He made that film, The Box. <laughs> That I guess was meant to be like a high concept thing, but that's like crap, isn't it? I think that's probably my favourite Richard Kelly film. No, that's a stupid thing to say. Really? I mean, I don't think I've seen it since I was, again, like a kid. The opportunities dried up for Mr. Kelly. Oh, Kelly. Um, But they haven't because, you know, it, this this thing keeps on getting dug up again and again. Yeah, being like so, so prescient. Look at how apocalyptic its vision of modern America is like a gun-toting... <laughs> liberal nightmare is it can't have even been edgy at the time no i don't think it was prescient at the time no it might have been salient but not prescient it's literally just rep like replicating fox news you know film that film after film 
by Jay Holberman is a great book and he talks about this film a lot as one of the the 20 films of the century you know yeah but that's all about like you know I guess people that have a field day with like media theory will love this because you can say look it's showing how information is fetishized and you know visualized and replicated and mastered okay maybe you know it can serve your academic thesis but I don't think it's an enjoyable film to watch if you're interested you should read this vice article because it just emerges that there is an explanation to everything and it's not like a multifaceted multi-layered work of art at all everything has just like a personal significance Let, let's just okay let's just really briefly then touch on the i'm a pimp and pimps don't commit suicide um motif because in that article you said yeah you sent me an excerpt where the genealogy of this weird phrase is just him saying that it came, it was like in the dialogue. That's what its origin is. It's in the dialogue. And, (laughs) um, and then it took on a metaphorical meaning. I love that. It became a metaphor for America. (laughs) Yeah. We were the pimp nation committing moral and financial suicide by invading Iraq levels but i think it's also meant to be like a cool phrase yeah you know it was only a couple of years after (laughs) pimp i'm sure people were saying i'm a pimp all the time uh we've done half an hour on southland tales nice one we were crazy man you can edit that we recorded this on the day (laughs) that southland tales it's your last chance to watch it today as i received a notification thank you Mubi, for having the event sorry guys if you wanted to catch it you're gonna have to pirate it or watch the uh, torrent, the director's cut, maybe. I guess if we'd had any guts, we would have talked to friend of the show, Ned, about Southland Tales or something like that, and maybe <laughs> explored it from a different perspective as opposed to the two haters, disappointed haters perspective. But I still really enjoyed talking about it. You're still listening to Film Grays. We're going to talk now about a film that we actually both really liked. Yeah, finally. <laughs> yeah. It was on movie. I think it's left about a week ago now. Mm. It is Brian De Palma's Sisters from 1972. Do you want to recount the extremely lurid and uh, scary plot? Oh, uh, yeah, I can give it a go. It's inspired by the story of um, like a pair of conjoined sisters in Russia. Um, but it's set in, is it, is it in New York? It's set in New York, uh, yeah. largely in Staten Island, which is quite rare and cool. Right, yeah, I don't really have any frame of reference. It's where the Wu-Tang are from, isn't it? Oh, cool. <laughs> Margot Kidder plays a, like, French Quebecy living there. It basically emerges that she has, like, a <laughs> spooky past. It's a scary-ass film, like, it's a mystery and a horror Basically, a journalist character who lives in her building, played by Jennifer Saul, witnesses a murder in Margaret Kidder's apartment of this black dude that she was on a date with because they were on a game show together about voyeurism. And then the plot is this journalist character trying to figure out, like, what the fuck is going on. And meeting very little support 
from all the uh, patriarchal society that <laughs> yeah. want to stop her from solving this like bizarre murder. Yeah, for yeah. sure. So straight from the off, well, she, I guess, reluctantly calls the police and, you know, she's treated with contempt, really. Articles that she's written that are like, I'm not saying all police are, are pigs, but... <laughs> like flash up, flash up on the screen and they're just like not cooperating. It's a crazy split screen sequence where the cover up of this murder is taking place, frustrating any sort of solution to the mystery um, because we know that the police and as you said, these like institutions are going to prevent the truth from coming out. Yeah, apparently De Palma was a, a real pioneer for that split screen technique which is used a couple of times in this film um and also these like as you say that sequence is awesome for having a really like two simultaneous like really crazy tracking shots going on Mm. um mapping out the space of this like little apartment in a way that you could almost compare to a rope by alfred hitchcock (laughs) for sure (laughs) where they're hiding hiding a body under a sofa you could also say that the uh, (laughs) The way that you follow the Philip character around and he's almost established as the main character until he is murdered in mysterious circumstances about 20 minutes into the film is a bit like um, Psycho by Alfred Hitchcock. You could also say that um, the way that the Jennifer Salt character initially witnesses the murder... Through a rear window. (laughs) Maybe invoking rear window. And you could also say that, um, you know, the whole trajectory of the character getting sort of lost, their having like their identity collapse while mm. investigating this like weird murder. It's a bit like a uh, Vertigo by Alfred Hitchcock. <laughs> um, however, I do think Brian De Palma is a pretty creative filmmaker. It negates the Hitchcock, um, Hitchcockiness through the Bernard Herrmann music. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, he supposedly like begged Bernard Herrmann like on his deathbed to like, oh, you gotta score this film. It really wouldn't be complete without your soundtrack. Um, and he he capitulated. There is one one bit that uses synth, which is really like weird for a Bernard Herrmann soundtrack, but it's got all the, you know, all the evil chords there mm. ringing off. Just on a Bernard Herrmann tip, I recently watched um, Cape Fear. To be fair, the Martin Scorsese one, which I guess sort of samples his music, but. Just such like an iconic composer, man. Of course. I mean, he did the psycho music, you know. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah, a... yeah. But this, uh, this like Hitchcock homage is like a huge trait in De Palma's work. Uh, like Dress to Kill is similar, sort of like trading off a lot of these things. And I guess even like The Untouchables, where that famously like references Eisenstein. Like... What is it? The pram shot? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um... <laughs> Fucking... Imagine ha- Imagine putting in a pram shot, bro. Yeah, I know, it's epic. That's mad. <laughs> but instead of the army, it's the cops, isn't it? Brilliant. I used to love the Untouchables and Scarface, Mission Impossible, you know. But <laughs> De Palma's early work is pretty fascinating, actually. There's a really good documentary called De Palma, where he sort of analyses a lot of his filmmaking technique. I think that documentary was made by Noah Baumbach, actually. <laughs> no way. <laughs> oh, it's really good. He is a really interesting filmmaker. When Joker came out last year, the like level of like homage to like, Scorsese was one of the more like derided things about the film. But... It was a really cool element of uh, this film, despite being just, like, f- extremely flagrant. Just the sense of homage. Yeah. For sure, man. I guess it's, like, the sense of operating within a tradition, which isn't inherently a bad thing. I guess it's born out of cinephilia, 
the other like sort of big thing about De Palma that I didn't really clock onto when I was watching Scarface when I was younger, but he did, he was like a real leftist filmmaker, especially coming out of it, working with a lot of acting co-ops and stuff like that. It's initially how he met Robert De Niro. Um, his film Hi Mom is supposedly really, really good, but I haven't seen that. But I like the way that this film engages with like the police and like gender politics and stuff like that, you know. Sure, man. It introduces a lot of critical discourses. In, in a really deliberate way, more so than your average sort of 70s exploitation horror flick. For sure, man. I found it extremely entertaining throughout, man. I guess we're going to talk about It's Alive and this really, um, the Larry Cohen film from around the same time. I feel like this compares just infinitely favourably to that. The dialogue is, I found it really jokes throughout, man. There's one bit where they watch a documentary about conjoined twins and then the, the journalist character is asked, oh, what did you think of that? And she goes, oh, that's an extraordinary tape, Miss Sweetland. <laughs> After this, like, <laughs> there's loads of great shit in there, man. I love the the scene when she tries to pitch the story to her boss when she goes into, like, the big Manhattan office building and her boss just, like, isn't interested at all, even though in this is obviously a sensational story. The way that, like, the space that takes place in is so different to anywhere else in the film. And then it sort of prepares you for this, like, really weird mansion slash asylum. God, the denim one is terrifying really isn't it <laughs> the like archival footage of the institute is really cool as well the way they shot it i think i read that the palmer shot a lot of that himself potentially and it's like black and white 16 mil and it's like i don't know how they shot that because it looks like a russian arc or something you've got all these like yeah it's weird all these different people walking in and yeah. out like a procession of of like medical curiosities not cool really but I appreciate your sensitive language. <laughs> I love the like investigation element where the journalist character employs like a PI to try and like fig- get to the bottom of it, and at the end of the film, he's like still like investigating it. God, that last shot is so fantastic, isn't it? Yeah, really like satisfying filmmaking. Charles Durning's a great actor. He's also in Dog Day Afternoon. I need to rewatch that, man. Good. But he was great in this film as another person who doesn't really believe in it, but I guess he's getting paid to investigate it, which is more than you could say for the main character. Yeah, ultimately the journalist character just gets gaslit. Well, exactly. I guess in like a very like sort of hip hypnotic way, but symbolically, you know, I guess that the allegory is of like a social silencing. The woman's voice. Yeah, that's certainly it. I think it's a huge thing in the film. I would really recommend to anyone who liked this film to read Robin Wood, a great canadian film theorist his book mm. hollywood from uh, vietnam to reagan and beyond he loved sisters he thinks it's one of the best films of the 70s and yeah his sort of like feminist analysis is all about repression and how like the the dominique danielle character is like her story like before the film is all about you know having this like husband and like losing a child all these ways that women are oppressed in like the marriage sort of domestic saying and then Meanwhile, you've got the journalist who, like, is being gaslit. Yeah, she's also trying to be, like, sold off into marriage by her, mo- by her like, traditionalist mother. Yeah, who wants her to give up journalism. And Danielle, like, starts out this film as, like, an object, like a participant in a game show, but not the competitor. Really good film. Shame we've uh, reached discussing it after it's left movie, but, you know, it's not going anywhere. I'm sure there's a lot of VHSs. <laughs> Yeah, shout out to Palmer, you know. This was a really sick film. And even though the five minutes of like me being weirdly uncomfortable, mm. once I settled in, it was just, it was so interesting. Um, it's really compelled me to seek out more of his early work as well. Because, you know, as you said, I do just think of him as like the Untouchables 
and like Mission Impossible and for sure. Yeah, this is like a radical and interesting film as well as being like great film art that really uses all a lot of the techniques available, you know, for that sense of suspense and you know, it's a great mystery film. I guess I need to watch more Hitchcock as well. <laughs> I mean, they're always good. a couple of other films contemporaneous to this one. Oh yeah well I mentioned to my mum that I'd watched Sisters and she yeah. was like oh have you we gotta watch Don't Look Now. She was right. Yeah she was. I watched it with Shan and my mum. It's a seriously sick film man. The first scene is crazy. It's actually amazing. Like setting up everything in like a very sick way man. Have you seen with, Antichrist? Like, no, no I actually haven't. It's quite similar. Yeah um, for sure. Just establishing that sense of, like, dread and, you know, the ominous shit, you know, and the unease. Um, but just, like, on a purely aesthetic level, like, I feel like the images in that first scene are, like, very striking. Like, the bleeding photo and, like, him coming out of the lake and... Oh! And, like, the red coat. That establishing, like, everything. And then it, the action moves to Venice, which is obviously sick. Shot, ama <laughs> shot amazingly, like... There are like the Canaletto-esque like big grand canals mm. in landscape, but also like a lot of freaky claustrophobic nighttime corridors and like courtyards and shit where it's like bare expressionistic. Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie are great in that movie. Yeah, the performances are sick, man. And the old yeah. ladies, I don't know who, what their names are, but they're fucking terrifying. And the dwarf, great performance. Yeah, the end is crazy, man. <laughs> Very, I guess, like, pretty Lynchian. I knew about the ending before I saw the film. Yeah, so fair enough. Like, oh, like it was the... pretty pretty shocking. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there is, a like, a really extendo sex scene in this film, man. So sick. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, okay, it's, it's, so, it's so long that we had enough time to discuss, like, the film classification system between Shan and my mum and me. Like, while it's, like, cutting to them, like, licking each other's feet and shit. <laughs> and then it was still going on after we'd, like, finished, like... I wonder whether they got away with it, because it was made in Italy. Have you seen any other Nick Rogue films? Nah, I haven't, man. What What would you recommend? Performance is obviously very sick. Oh, is that the one with Mick Jagger in it? Yeah. Um. What else? I haven't seen Walkabout, actually. I've heard that's really good. This film, Eureka incredibly dark weird i guess more like a peter greenaway film or something like that but again just like crazy character dynamics and like dialogue and arguments yeah yeah yeah. it's <laughs> honestly man don't look now i actually fucking loved it donald sutherland's character is like a church restorer as well so there's loads of like cool church interiors and exteriors which are like a locus of like peril as well did you did we say this is a film about a couple who lose a child Oh, I guess sort of, no. <laughs> it, well, it is. Another film we watched for Little Film Club that was programmed by a good friend of the show, Soraya, Larry Cohen's It's Alive, which was from 74. Yeah, I think so. 
also about a sort of upper middle class like bourgeois family having like being beset by a sort of parental tragedy i guess it's a bit like sisters and also a bit like don't look now in that sort of everyone from outside the family be that the doctors or the police just want to sort of do anything they can to silence the parents who have given birth to this like evil baby there's no explanation (laughs) for why this giant baby with like fangs who like jumps out of the womb and immediately murders the entire hospital staff (laughs) in the operating theater is doing this oh yeah i mean there's a thinly thinly constructed anti-pharmaceutical veneer to the story but sort of ambiguous and but the real monster is definitely like the superstructure of like yeah the man yeah for sure (laughs) yeah for sure sure. i just found they came out around the same time as um don't look now and uh sisters and just like the editing the dialogue just none of it really clicked for me it was like very much so a B movie. They can have charm, but I just found it like jarring and like unprofessional. <laughs> it was definitely more working within the genre than either of the other films we talked about. Larry Cohen is a like very beloved independent filmmaker who makes a lot of comedy horror films like uh The Stuff and Cue the Winged Serpent are both supposed to be classics that he made in the eighties. He also wrote both Phone Booth and Cellular. Um, so, you know, B-movies, I don't think he has a problem with making outrageous like concept films like this that can still have interesting elements to them. Mm-hmm. I found it pretty entertaining, but ultimately I was on the baby side, you know. Yeah, for sure. Look, I mean, it's good that it's anti-cop and like anti-big pharma, even if it's like, it doesn't like go into these like skepticisms at all i just didn't feel like it reveled in its like goriness or campiness or special effects at all like so while it's like schlocky it's not like enjoyable if it feels like it should be extreme but it just wasn't i think that while i completely i do understand that i think that like the interesting sequences in the film were definitely not like the gore sequences well, the sort of, yeah. The sort of dead space between all the murders, which is like 90% of the film, even though there, there's one sequence with a milkman, which was fucking jokes. But <laughs> yeah. but this is what I guess, it, like, when I said the dialogue, I didn't feel like it was good. So even these moments that are, like, away from the action that provide, like, political or social context. <sighs> yeah, I think De Palma worked that out into his exploitation film quite a lot more naturally Mm. but it's alive was still a jogs film and it was really fun for a sort of communal watch i mean i guess it's a sort of for sure it got the memes of flowing didn't it it's the sort of film you'd see in like one of those 24-hour horror madness things or whatever or like an all-night for sure for sure and to synthesize that was quite fun over discord listeners join our discord server and you can watch cool films with us on wednesday nights (laughs) and some some brilliant friends of the show and some new friends yeah sam you did the selection for little film club for tonight what did you pick um i've picked louis boomwell's the phantom of liberty uh haven't seen this one you you lent me a free dvd set of this that obscure object of desire and um the discreet charm de bourgeoisie and i watched two out of three of them before feeling like i should probably give it back his three final films <laughs> yeah i feel like they're probably all really similar this was in his like sixth decade of filmmaking i mean this is the guy who obviously made Anshian andalou yeah, and yeah, yeah 
loads of classic films to be honest like personal favorites would be like Viridiana fuck there's so many Diamond of the Desert is a sick film short yeah oh, Nazarene was a, was shortlisted oh god that film's fucking awesome <laughs> yeah I was gonna pick that uh, another one I was gonna pick was <laughs> the I think it's called the Saragossa Manuscript the adaptation the Polish adaptation of the Manuscript Van Saragossa from 1965 so really sick classic story within a storybook vaguely inspired some phil graves lyrics at some point along the way and nice. um but it's like three hours long so i thought i i can't really do that <laughs> watched it at uni i'm really down but um yeah i remember it being pretty bunwell-esque actually i'm sure it is man it's a like a the stories are like surreal and like morbid and mythical i think you made a great choice with the phantom of liberty yeah, I'm down. Last week was um, leaving Las Vegas, which was uh, Brian Bakadin's uh, <laughs> pick. Oh, that was quite a hard watch, wasn't it? I hadn't seen that before. I, it was it was jokes how the first ten minutes was all like, oh yeah, Richard Lewis. Ooh. Yeah, <laughs> like, and then it was actually one of the most nasty, miserable films I've seen recently. Yeah, so deep, deeply unpleasant. I hated the last twenty minutes. <laughs> yeah when like it. the masculist teleology is you know realized <laughs> yeah 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 um, and worst worst sex scene yeah that's really uh ever yeah but it won nicholas cage's oscar well deserved maybe he'll get his second one for playing joe exotic <laughs> yeah maybe um fuck if I may just say a few things about The Phantom of Liberty. I know you haven't seen it. Yeah, oh yeah, please go ahead. It's definitely one of his, like, loosest films. I know I said that, like, Southland Tales didn't make sense. This film has, like, a a loose thread structure, but it's basically just a bunch of scenes, uh, like, sketches to illustrate, you know, the fact that we live in a hell world. You know? I felt I... I... Obviously, um, that obscure object of desire has like a narrative framework of the story being told by someone to people in Definitely the train, so in the the train carriage. That's still like very vignette though, isn't it? And just these like episodes to... And um, the discrete charm is similarly, you know, scattered, I think. But those films both have like characters that appear in... <laughs> uh, I know that obscure object of desire really complicates it. That's, I think, my favourite Bunwell film, in a way. Really? But um, this film is just, like, sketches. Yeah, like, great. You see, you, see, you see sick actors turning up. It's like I was saying to Brian Bakkenin that it's like uh, the Roy Anderson films. Um, yeah. He and I both and... really love those You the Living songs from the second floor. And I'm really looking forward to About Endlessness, which hopefully will come out at some point in the oh. next year, um, which is his latest film those are all like more philosophical than like sort of whereas i think this is more interested in like political theory and like exposing you know hypocrisies and ironies and all the things that like people have been doing in literature for hundreds of years you know mm. true satire that makes you think as opposed to south and tales which just beats your brain to a mess yeah i mean <laughs> Just think, South Tales really is just an end of history dirge, isn't it? Yeah. Ooh. And, you know, The Phantom of Liberty is extremely jokes. Oh, I'm looking forward to watching it tonight. Listeners, please get involved with the Little Film Club if you want. Reach out. Anything else you want to 
miscellaneous shit. The last Star Wars film has come on Disney Plus, to which I have a communal access. You're gonna watch it. I, I still have no desire to watch it. Nah. Yeah, I really. I can't. I'm not really interested. That's sad, isn't it? Ah, uh, maybe it's happy. <laughs> It'd be sad for you if you really wanted to watch it, despite knowing that it was gonna be bad. <laughs> Uh, it's cool to leave the saga incomplete, you know. I know you haven't seen episode 20 of Twin Peaks or whatever. Yeah, yeah, of course. So, that's calm. Uh, I did watch a really sick film, actually, that I just want to talk about for one minute. It's called November. It's a Estonian film from a couple of years ago. Oh, yeah, this looks sick, actually. Yeah, it's on Amazon. It reminded me of a lot of things I like. Uh, it's sort of like Marketa Lazarova sort of like aphorim it's black and white and it's like a folk fairy tale sort of thing but with like quite a few diffuse like folk elements like random shit going on but like the main thing is like a love potion sort of tragedy plot you know oh it sounds really good yeah it was really cool man very sort of aesthetically specific but really cool it's it's based on a novel which was apparently sort of popular but hasn't been translated into english so yeah who knows what that's saying but uh, yeah i'd recommend checking it out if you want to watch some like i mean it is like very arty but it does have like a story throughout very cool nice one man thanks for listening to film grays you can you can subscribe on soundcloud or itunes or spotify or whatever you like get in touch send us a message Mm. yeah more episodes coming soon we've got loads to do yeah <laughs> All yeah. the ones that we've mentioned are coming on previous episodes are still coming. <laughs> we just haven't recorded them yet. Yeah. Well, thanks for listening. It's good to talk, man. Yeah, it's fun to discuss movie programming. I think they've been uh, giving us some good stuff. Yeah. Hopefully, they continue to do while we don't have cinemas. Yeah. I've been Emmett. I'm Sam. Thanks for listening, guys. Cheers. <laughs>